everybody, to the newest episode of PenPodcast.com. I'm your host, Matthew Harms, founder of Pen for Hire, where we offer premier ghostwriting and author coaching services. Also the founder of the Pen Podcast, where we sit with authors, writers, writing industry professionals, subject matter experts, and all around interesting people. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by number one international best-selling author of the post-COVID marketing machine, Guy Powell. How are you today, Guy? Matt, great. Great to be here. Thank you very much. It is my pleasure. I'm happy you were able to join us on this. Uh, well, it's Thursday afternoon for me. Where are you uh, about joining us from? I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. Where are you, Matt? Uh, I'm right outside of New York City. Oh, fantastic. So we're actually in the same time zone. Yep, yep. And just uh, recovering from the elections. Ah, uh, there's never really any recovery from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, ours doesn't uh, hasn't stopped yet. We still have to go through December sixth with the with the oh, runoff, the runoff so. right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I try to make it a point of never discussing politics or religion unless it's in writing, where I don't have to like just keep going. Well, I would like to point out one thing, and this is not political because I agree with you. I definitely don't want that. But the level of uh, advertising spend, which is obviously important to me because I'm a marketer, for the elections, for this recent election over the last three months was a roughly about maybe $200 million just for the senatorial race. Now, $200 million in Georgia represents 7% of the market. So therefore, on a national basis, that would be roughly... $250 million of spend over three over three months at 7% is then about two and a half to $3 billion. Now that's three months over a year. You multiply that times four, you're at $12 billion, roughly equivalent to a national advertiser. Guess who the biggest advertiser, national advertiser is? Oh, the RNC and the DNC. Well, no, fair enough. But I mean, as a company and as a brand. Oh, um, hmm, that's a, well, I don't know. I'll tell you, it's it's uh, it was Geico. They spent maximum two billion dollars, and in Georgia alone, over those last three months, they spent the equivalent of twelve billion dollars, six times what uh, Geico would spend. It's crazy how much we saw. I we're gonna get to your book, but since you went there, I'm gonna leave it at this. I do a lot of writing about. I am not political. I think the whole system is broken. But if we took the amount of money that both national conventions spend, we could cure world hunger. <laughs> that is very true. That is very true. <laughs> Only to elect the the lesser of two evils. So I've got a yes, huge problem true. the way that works. But as a marketer, I'm glad you pointed out the dollars because I never looked at it from that perspective. And you can't turn on anything. Geico is everywhere. Their banners, their, their pop-up ads. In fact, yeah. after we get off this call, I'm sure I'm going to get an advertisement for Geico because it's listening to us. Yep, absolutely. Well, so my book and and what we do is we worry about advertising spend and the ROI, the return on marketing investment for that advertising spend. And so that's why I kind of always look at what I think they're spending and how well they're doing. And and that's kind of where then uh, that comment came from. So uh, you know, I'm always looking at that. And I hate to say it, my wife hates it. <laughs> I'll be pointing stuff out on an ad while watching TV. And she's like, guy, just shut up. <laughs> so my everyone in my world hates it too, because I'm the first one watching a commercial or reading something. And I'm like, that's not grammatically correct. Or they spelt <laughs> that wrong. You know? When you do something, when you live, eat, breathe, and sleep something, you can't not just point it out. It comes natural. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and for me, you know, I look at who's in the ads. So we get all these drug commercials and whatever, and mostly women, mostly men, mostly young, mostly old. You can tell exactly who they're targeting with with the drug or with the product or with, or with the service. It's it's pretty in, in, interesting to watch the ads and see what they're what they have in the pictures and then how you can interpret what they're actually trying to do. Again, completely off topic, but since you said it, I've always wondered how these companies justify ad spend on drugs to the consumer because I can't prescribe myself a drug. <laughs> well, first of all, that's what we do is we help them justify their advertising. Number one, that's and that's the most important thing. And certainly if you're going to build a, a marketing machine where you want to make sure that every dollar you invest works, drives ROI. Uh, number two, what they're really doing is they want you as the consumer or as the patient to go to the doctor and say, hey, I've got these symptoms. It's just like that commercial. Do I have that disease? And then that's how they're that's how this is all playing, playing out. We did some work for a pharmaceutical company that had a new drug for migraine headaches. And I will admit, I never until I saw the statistics, I never realized how bad it is. But, you know, sometimes, you know, a migraine headache can be debilitating. You can't work. You can't do anything. And yet here you have a, a drug that could be very successful. You know, in their case, it was maybe 75 percent successful. But 75 percent of the people uh, in an enormous in an enormous patient set uh, makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah. One of the things I always laugh about, and I'm curious from your perspective as the marketer, is you'll see an advertisement for a drug that, let's say it's for migraines, but then they list the potential side effects. And it's like, could cause and even death. And now all of a sudden I'm like, my migraine doesn't feel so bad. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, and, I, and you're right about that. There's one I was just listening to the other day. And probably more than half the commercial was on the side effects, including death, of course. And and but I will admit the disease or the the uh, the treatment that it was providing for the disease or the uh, the illness or whatever it was was really bad. And so you either have one bad thing or you have the risk of another. So it's it's the patient has to the patient has to make that decision and. And the, the media and the advertising, then at least by providing you the information that there is something out there, that there is potentially a trade-off. I think, I think that's where the value comes in. So I, not that I'm a 100% fan of advertising in all cases, but I think in that case, it really does provide a, a real value. No, and I love that you have that professional input of, hey, see both sides of the coin, because when you're not in marketing per se, you can tend to just look at it and laugh and say, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Who would do this? But when you when you bring out the positives, I guess I can see if it's helping anybody and they're still giving you the disclaimer and you're going to talk to a professional about it. It makes sense. Yep. Yeah. No, and especially for drugs, I think it does make sense most of the time. <laughs> and uh, but, you know, for other products and services, there's no question that you know, I need to make people aware of uh, of my brand if I'm a new brand or I need to make them aware of a new feature or I need to make them aware of a new price or a buy one, get one or whatever. So that there is really, in my opinion, there is true value, although sometimes can be mis misleading, but there is true value to the message that's in that ad for the consumer set that they're targeting. Got it. Thank you for listening to the penpodcast.com produced by Pen for Hire. Have you always wanted to write a book, but just can't seem to find the time? Do you have an amazing story to tell? 
but don't enjoy writing? At Pen for Hire, we specialize in extracting the words from your head and turning them into compelling written content. And we do it in your voice. So not only does the story get told, but no one will ever know you didn't do the writing. Visit our website at www.penforhirenyc.com to find out more today. And now back to the interview. So let's, let's bring this back to you. How long have you been in marketing? I've been in now, uh, I would, ooh, man, uh, 20, 25 years, uh, definitely going back a ways. And uh, I, I was a consultant, I was a business consultant for a while. And then from there, I went into marketing and applying then the business consulting kind of rigor, as well as the critical thinking to marketing problems is really what led me to being very successful. I very quickly made it to be global VP of a mid-sized company, VP of marketing. And then uh, from there, went off on my own. And uh, applying now those consulting and rigor and other kind of capabilities that I had learned to now marketing to be able to say, is my marketing working? And then, then with that, now I've written four or five books. My last one, as I mentioned, the uh, post-COVID marketing machine. And uh, post-COVID marketing machine is now not only to help to give you a positive ROI from your marketing, but to be, make sure that it's predictable, accountable, and repeatable. As the CEO or the C-suite, what I want to be able to do is I want to be able to say, okay, here's 10 million, here's 100 million, how much sales am I going to get from that? And I want to know reasonably accurately to be able to say, yep, I'm going to get a billion or two billion in sales off of that money. And therefore, I'm willing to invest. Otherwise, why would I do it? Why would I invest a nickel in marketing unless I knew I was going to get a return? And so that's what the CEOs for these larger companies are asking for. And that's why they need this machine with, like I said, predictable, accountable, repeatable kind of results out of your marketing investments. So I'm kind of curious, are you, do you give those insights and secrets away in the post-COVID marketing machine? Well, I give case studies and I give methods. Okay. Certainly, I can't give it to a specific company because each, each and every company is different. It doesn't matter what you're doing. And I, I often get asked uh, questions like, well, what's the benchmark for marketing success for a, a, a TV ad? And the difference is, or the reason why you can't answer that is that, okay, well, I'm selling a, I'm selling, let's say some M&Ms worth whatever it is, $289 a pack versus I'm selling a car, $28,000 a car. So for the same ad, the, the equation and the effort and the activity and the consumer behavior that responds to that is totally different. You know, selling a $28,000 or $280,000 car versus a $2.89 pack of, of M&Ms. I mean, I would imagine also somewhere in that equation is, is the markup percentage, right? Because you may be, M&Ms may be making 50% for every pack they sell, but that only equates to $1.45, whereas BMW is only making 7% per car. Absolutely, absolutely. And that all comes into the equation. And, and that's why one of the things that's really also critical, and I don't know, this is maybe a, a nit, but... You know, in, in with M&Ms, for example, you might see a buy three, get one free. So that's a 25% discount. Will that promotion work for, for M&Ms, right? But you're not going to go into BMW and do a buy three cars and get one free. I, I mean, I wish I could do that, you know? 
but it's I not going to happen. You have to have a very niche clientele, like the CEO <laughs> of multi-million-dollar organizations is buying his whole C-suite BMWs. Like, let's do that this year. Hey, that's right. That's that's what that's what I aspire to. <laughs> so I'm curious that. And if this is off topic, let me know. But in this day and age, there are so many people, companies, services offering different kinds of marketing advice, right? You've got SEO, you've got Google Ads. Everyone wants to tell you that they can help you increase your revenue. How do you know who's real and who's not? I mean, obviously outside of you being you and you being real. Yeah. Yeah, this is not me. This is Memorex. (laughs) Sorry, that's an old one. But in any case, we're actually one layer above that. So we are looking at all of the different marketing activities that are taking place across the spectrum, whether it's TV, you mentioned SEO, search engine marketing, paid social, organic social, digital advertising, connected TV, you name it. We work across all of them. And our goal and our output is then to be able to say, For every dollar of TV that I spent, I got a certain ROI. For every dollar of search engine optimization, I got a certain ROI. With that information, then I can either do one of two things. I can either then go back to the the guy that said, hey, I can help your SEO and say, hey, you didn't do that good. You got to do you got to do better. Figure out what you're doing wrong. You know, let's get that. Let's get that better because TV is giving me a better ROI or. I could say, well, listen, what are we even spending any money for on SEO? Let's cut it back maybe by 50% or cut it back by 75% and take that money and put it in the TV because I'm getting a better ROI over there. And so those are really kind of the two big support mechanisms that we provide through when we build our, our, our marketing machine. Got it. So it sounds like you're not the guys out there buying the ads. You're more managing the overall strategy of where Correct. to place and who to use. Correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. And looking at the mix and then looking at what went wrong, what went right, and then being able to diagnose what went wrong and what went right. So for example, we're just working with a a company now and uh, they're having some trouble with their paid social. It was doing great last year. And we're now in the process of trying to figure out why all of a sudden in this last quarter, it's doing so badly. One of the things we think is happening is that the elections got in the way the massive, massive amount of money spent in Q3 on the elections now detracted from the brands trying to make their own money off of uh, their paid social. And so they weren't able to get their ROI. And we're thinking that that might be at least one big contributing factor to the reason why their their paid social didn't work. It's an interesting discovery or hypothesis. And I'm wondering if you kind of determine that it's most likely true. Do you think during next election periods, companies will just halt spending? Well, you know, it's well, that's why you need a marketing machine. <laughs> if you don't mind me continuing to pitch. No, my please. That's why you're here. Machine. Yeah. I'm a but writing the, machine, not a marketing yeah. machine. <laughs> well, the, the, the idea then is, okay, so the C-suite says, hey, the stockholders, the shareholders, the board gave us a target. We've got to make $50 billion in revenue and we got to make $10 billion in profit, $50 million in revenue, $10 million, whatever the numbers are. And all of a sudden, we were counting on our paid social working. And all of a sudden, in this case, wow, our paid social isn't working. You know, how do we get our numbers back up? Well, they need to know where to spend. So they're, they're going to say, well, paid social isn't working anymore, but maybe, uh, you know, connected TV is. So let's, let's uh, monitor it very closely, like a machine, 
let's monitor it very closely, watch then uh, the paid social results go down and say, man, something's going on here. We think it might be a, the elections. Looks like connected TV might work better. Let's shift that spending around as soon as possible so that we can get as close as we can to what our target is for Q3 and then potentially recover that in Q4 so that we can still get our bonuses, our stock price will go up, and the shareholders and the board will be happy. Love it. So I'm going to backtrack here for a minute because this is your fifth book. So when did you write your first book and why? what prompted you to write it? Yeah, exactly. So right after the uh, right after the tech bust, I was uh, I was let go. I was uh, you know the the it was it happened you know right, and I first of all told myself I am not going to sit here idly and do nothing, and I had uh, just built a, a marketing machine basically for my client uh, my my company, and um, you know so I took then what I learned and I put it into a book. It was called Return on Marketing Investment. And it was the early, early stages of that. Then from there, I, you know, a couple of years later, I was doing a lot of training. I was training all over the world, speaking all over the world and, and loving the travel and stuff like that. And then I said, you know, from what I learned from my training, I now need to write another book. And then I wrote uh, Marketing Calculator. Then all of a sudden, a couple of years later, social media was really a big deal. And everybody was asking, well, what's the value of a like? I don't know if you remember that, but everybody, you know, everybody I talked to, well, guy, you know, if you're an ROI, what's the value of a like, you know, on Facebook? And so then I wrote a book called The ROI of Social Media. And I had two other co-authors that were really good at social media. And uh, so that was that one. And then a couple of years later, I wrote uh, Marketing Machine because then the process had progressed to where it wasn't just being able to measure the ROI and make some small adjustments. The real issue was whether I could make the, um, the changes, but make them in a predictable way, accountable way, and in a repeatable way. And so that was the reason then for my marketing machine book. And then now the post-COVID marketing machine, because the, uh, the world changed, consumer behavior changed and everything changed. And then that's, that was the purpose of the, uh, the post-COVID marketing machine. Thank you for tuning in to the Pen Podcast, produced by Pen for Hire. Do you struggle with finding affordable and reliable proofreaders? Are you tired of the AI software that doesn't always understand human language? Pen for Hire has an extensive network of professionals we can refer you to to help. Visit our website at www.penforhirenyc.com to get your free consultation today. And now back to the interview. So I'm, I've got a few questions, but I'm going to take the most recent one since I didn't even write it down yet. Obviously, we all know from a, from a consumer and a daily life standpoint that things have changed. From a marketing standpoint, right? So you have this machine that was working pre-COVID. What needed to be tweaked to fit the post-COVID world? Yeah, and I think if, if the machine was done correctly, then relatively little. However, in reality you know, there were a handful of tweaks and they really revolve around three things. Most importantly, at a top level, it's consumer behavior changed and consumer behavior changed in three ways. The first was consumer purchase behavior changed. So for example, I remember sitting right here at my desk and during COVID and the stores had opened up and I needed something for, you know, for my office here. And I said, well, let me just go into the store. I'll run over to Walmart and I'll go pick it up. I get into my car, I drive up to the top of the street and I say to myself, 
what am I doing in the car? I'll just go on Amazon and I'll buy it on Amazon. So I turn around, I come back, I log into Amazon, boom, I buy it and I got it the next day. And so right there, the consumer purchase behavior changed in a big way. It moved from brick and mortar over to online and especially across a, uh, just about all the segments. Prior to that, you'd have you know the millennials and the younger folks, the Gen Zs, they'd have already been buying just about everything online. And now even the, even the Gen Xs and the boomers were now starting to be forced to buy stuff online. So consumer purchase behavior. The second one is uh, consumer media consumption behavior. I don't know about you, but we started binging different shows, you know, on Apple and on Prime and on whatever. And so all of a sudden our behavior changed. We weren't watching, you know, television and entertainment the way we were. And so because of that, and, and also, by the way, uh, sports went away. One of, our, one of our clients, that was their primary advertising vehicle, was to advertise in uh, college football and baseball and golf and tennis. They're all gone. So the consumer media consumption behavior changed and the brands had to reconfigure what they were doing. And then the last thing is the consumer response behavior. I think because of COVID, just about everybody's sitting there with their phone now, or maybe even I think more so, they're sitting there with their phone or their laptop or their iPad watching TV or doing whatever. And as soon as they see an interesting ad, they go online and type in, you know, the, the brand name or whatever it is, dot com, bam, 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 and they're online. And I and that behavior also changed. So the three things changed from a consumer uh, behavior perspective, the purchase behavior, the media consumption behavior, and then the media response behavior. And that's then described in the book as, as really what changed uh, due to COVID. And then now post-COVID, and I think even as we kind of mature out of the post-COVID area, then that change will then start to shift back maybe a little bit, and but most of it will probably be pretty well ingrained into all of our consumer, all of our behaviors. So um, it's interesting that you said move back a little bit as I was writing a question for you, and this may be out of your scope. I'm only bringing it up because we have two different clients writing two different books, neither one in marketing, but very much on the future of sales and the future of other areas of business due to the rise of Web3 in the metaverse. So do you foresee, I mean, I guess this is a stupid question. Maybe, maybe it's not because uh, things change all the time, but are you foreseeing or are you hearing anything from clients and advertisers who are already looking forward to that shift? Oh yeah. 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 It's going to take a while though, but uh, absolutely. So there's been a couple of companies that have been building presences on in, in the metaverse and they're learning fast, whether it's successful or not, but they're learning fast, which is critical. And even Walmart, even Walmart built a presence. Wendy's built a presence. Mini is building a presence. A lot of brands are already building presences out there because they, I think they realize that if they were late to the internet game 20, 30 years ago, they don't want to be late to Web 3.0, the metaverse this time. And I think the, the goal is not necessarily to buy stuff, uh, yet it's more a question of can I build engagement and with that engagement, build the brand. So one of the things that uh, one of the examples, and I can't remember the car company that's doing it, they are targeting, I think it's now, I think it's Hyundai. They are targeting young kids. So less, you know, in the 12, 10, 12, 14 year old age, pre-buyers of cars. They're not, they're not about anywhere near buying a car, but they are building the brand of Hyundai to them 
so that when they get five or 10 years older, then the brand image of Hyundai will still be with them when they're actually ready to buy a, a you know, a new car. Wow. Talk about the long play. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I think though, what'll happen though, is, you know, the, that those folks, those kids will age in to the market. And so the brands need to follow that aging in as those, those kids and, and teens get older and what have you. And then they move into actually buying stuff. Now, one of the, and I don't know if you know this, but one of the hardest groups uh, or one of the hardest segments of uh, people to reach are male, uh, young males. So in the ages from, let's say, 18 to, to 30. Well, a lot of them, they're hard to reach because they're in the metaverse or they're on, you know, doing something on, you know, in gaming or whatever it happens to be. So already there's a segment of the population that I can now reach through the metaverse. And then so the brands then that are targeting those, that age group and that, that gender, then will now find the ability to actually reach them. They can't reach them with most other uh, marketing channels, but they can potentially now reach them through the, through the metaverse. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for uh, helping me realize my question wasn't as stupid as I thought as I said it. Uh, <laughs> I want to jump back here to something I wrote before. So now that you've got five books, one of which is an international bestseller, how can you quantify how having them has helped your business? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, first of all, it's immediate credibility that I know what I'm talking about. And, and for the company, that, that when we do something, that we are absolutely doing something with some rigor behind it. So there's one uh, thing that we do, and, and I, we just landed a new client. And the first step is to build out their data. And I'm not going to go into the details of it. But one of the concepts in there is how we are starting that project with them is to use that data concept called the data framework directly with them. And it makes the whole process easy, clear, easy to understand, and readily digestible by marketers that are really not that much interested in numbers. I mean, yes, of course they are, but they don't really get into the next level of detail in terms of the analytics and all of the other stuff that goes with it. And when they see, you know, some of these simple concepts or that that or concepts that have been simplified, they get it right away, and it really, really does help to uh, you know to make their their business much more successful. I love it. I kind of inferred it must have been helping because otherwise you would have stopped at book one or book two. That you really are just a glutton for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am a glutton for punishment. Like someone's going to read this one. <laughs> Another question I'm really curious about, and maybe it had no impact at all, but hitting number one international bestseller is, is no easy feat. How much, if at all, did your marketing background help you in driving that achievement? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we... Um... We invested a lot of time and, and money in, in going after that. Now, I will admit whether that actually helps me to sell more consulting projects, probably not. So it's probably more of an ego thing and certainly something, though, that you can talk about to your, you know, to prospective clients when you're saying, hey, this, here's this book, here's this author, number one bestseller. There must be something, there must be something in there. And so then, you know, let me hear more. Tell me more. And in an ideal world, that's really the first thing that you want to get is somebody to say, well, tell me more about what you do and how it can help me. And I, I love that you say that because you're right. I, I don't have specific data on it, but it's probably 1% of the population who's like, I'm only going to work with him because that book is an international bestseller. It's definitely a, a good feather in the cap. But if you sold 100 copies of the books, 
but it brought you a hundred new clients and your average client brings yep. you 20 grand a year. It was well worth the effort. Yep. Absolutely. I'd like to add a factor of 10 or a hundred to each of those numbers, but absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going very small scale, right? Cause if you sell it down, scale yeah, it up. Yeah. Yeah, say yeah, marketing. yeah. So yep. I'm curious, guys, what comes next for you? Do you have any other books on the horizon or are these more, uh, as things change and you identify a need, you're like, I'm going to write about this. Well, I think two things. One is, I think the in the immediate term, I'm now going to take this book and I'm just going to do some follow-up interviews to say, hey, we're now post-post-COVID and now what's going on? And so uh, I'm going to make do some follow-up interviews with a bunch of the folks that, are, that I already interviewed and kind of update the book that way, number one. But the other one is now, as the metaverse really starts to take off, the next book is going to be, you know, the the metaversal marketing machine or something like that. Don't know, but it'll definitely be on the on the metaverse. That's kind of what my my vision is right now. I love it, guy. Where can everyone listening at home? Where can they find out more about you? Working with you to solve their marketing challenges, purchasing your book. How can they get into your world? Absolutely. So uh, to purchase the book, it's available in on uh, Amazon. So Amazon.com. Just look for Guy Powell or Post COVID Marketing Machine or Marketing Machine, any of those things, and you'll be able to find me. So Post COVID Marketing Machine on Amazon. My company name is Pro Relevant, and the company website is ProRelevant.com. And then specifically to get more information on the book, go to Marketing Machine. Dot prorelevant.com, marketingmachine.prorelevant.com. That'll give you more information on the book. And then, of course, prorelevant.com, more information on me and, and my company. Amazing. Um, and we will make sure that we have all of your contact information listed in the show notes. So for everyone listening at home who either couldn't catch that or just didn't have a pen handy, we will make sure that you have everything you need to get in touch with Guy. Uh, we really appreciate when you support our um, our guests. Thank you for tuning in. You've spent this time listening to Guy Powell speak about the post-COVID marketing machine here with Matt Harms at Pen for Hire and the Pen Podcast. We will catch you all in the next episode. And Guy, thank you so much once again for your amazing insights today. Absolutely. Thank you, Matt. It's been a pleasure. 